Hello, and welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we cover Philip K. Dick's 1968 sci-fi classic, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? All right, chicken heads, let's head to the roof and hop in our hover car. to a new project uh this is going to be the blade runner episodes and the so we're going to begin with the novel that inspired the movies yeah we're jumping into like a completely different genre here we're into going from horror straight to sci-fi our last project was it by stephen king yeah hopefully um people who have been waiting to to do something not horror will will find something here to enjoy um yeah so so this novel uh we're going to break into two parts we're going to do chapters 1 through 10 in this episode. Um, that's all we've read. And uh, then we'll finish the book out with the second half, which is 11 through 22. Uh, so if you wanted to follow along, you can do that. Um, also, if you're just curious about the novel that inspired Blade Runner, um, this is a good way to kind of get your toes wet and uh, see, if it's, see if it's a book that you're interested in reading. You can kind of kind of get a little sneak peek of it here. So I guess the reason that we chose this project was uh, Blade Runner 2049 is coming out and yeah. the original Blade Runner 1982 is one of my favorite films. And I didn't even realize that it was based off a book until Luke told me. Yeah. And what's funny is, well, I guess we should talk about our history with with the project. Um, I have seen the 1982 version of Blade Runner, but it was so long ago. I don't remember it other than it looking kind of dark and Harrison Ford being in it. <laughs> like, I really don't remember it. I was a kid when I saw it. So... I knew that it was based off a book. Um, I've never read this book. So this has been like a very different experience for me because it's all new and I don't know what's going to happen. Because honestly, I don't even remember, like that's something we can talk about. Like as we were reading this book, I don't, I didn't even know, like I couldn't recognize what was in the, in the movie even. I was like, I, this, is, this seemed like all new to me. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you this and this is a perfect time to ask. Uh, do you know anything about the the like even hearing things on the internet or anything about the the Blade Runner 1982 film. So all I know is that Harrison Ford is in it, that he hunts androids, and that there may or may not be some debate about who is an android. I guess I, I don't want to get into spoilers, but like I know a little bit about how like that's kind of the the big question is like who's who's an android and who's not. Right. Cool. Well, yeah, that's I'm excited for you to jump into that and for us to figure it out along the way. I'm also, I don't remember like hardly any other specifics and I've seen the trailers for the new for the new movie, but that's it. I'm also really surprised because I know going into this, we were saying that the, the novel was going to be so much different than the film. But like right off the bat, there's just like it's it's unrecognizable. It's crazy. There's, oh, really? OK, there's very See, I didn't I mean, know there's very there's definitely the themes are still going on kind of this the overall story is similar but there's so okay. many different like things that you get from the novel that i was like holy crap this is insane all right so before we get into the novel i wanted to talk a little bit about philip k dick um now i just did some light research um so this is all easily found online 
But I wanted to ask you, do you know anything about the author? I know the name, and I know that if somebody told me the, the titles of his novels, I would, I would recognize them, but I honestly don't even know that I've read one of his books before. All right, well, prepare to hear some, because some of these have been made into movies. Um, so I think it is reasonable to, to think we might revisit him in the future. Um, he wrote The Man in High Castle, in The High Castle, which is a TV show. He wrote Total Recall, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've seen a good version and a bad version of that film. Yeah. He wrote, he wrote Minority Report. Nice. Solid. I like that film. He wrote um, uh, A Scanner Darkly. I haven't seen that. Is that a film? Yeah. It is. A, it has been made into a movie. Um, I don't remember it. I feel like I saw it in the 90s. Um, and then a recent one uh, that was just recently adapted, I should say, The Adjustment Bureau. Okay. Yeah, I saw that. I actually like that. that. Yeah, it was a, it was I think it was pretty divisive. So that's all Philip K. Dick. Cool. That's crazy. He's all over the place with his sci-fi stuff. Yeah. All right. So let me give you a little bit of a, his personal history because it's kind of interesting, I think. Um, so first off, yeah, he writes he writes these sci-fi books that um, often include uh, these monopoly corporations, authoritarian governments, alternate universes, and altered states of consciousness. And it's they're normally deeply philosophical. Um he was born um, with a twin sister who died shortly afterward, like six weeks after they were born. And he said that he, like, or there's like this theme of a shadow twin in a lot of his work. Um, he graduated from Berkeley High School the same year as Ursula K. Le Guin, um, but they didn't know each other. Um, he's a college dropout from the University of California, and he suffered from chronic anxiety. Um... In his career, he was praised as a genius by the sci-fi world, but the rest of the literary community didn't really acknowledge him, and because of that, he had financial troubles his entire life. He was married five times and suffered from drug addiction, which he eventually sought help for, um, and then he died from a stroke at 53 years old in 1982, the year that the original Blade Runner was released. I knew that he died uh, right before Blade Runner came out, like around that time, which is unfortunate because that was the thing that really cemented him. I do believe he saw it because I read a, I read a quote about it. So I think he had seen the movie at least and was a fan from the quote I read. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Oh, and when he died, he was unmarried. So <laughs> um, yeah, he, uh, he had five marriages before the age of 53. It's... Um, Tells you something about the man. I'm not sure what, but um, yeah, it seems like he was all over the place from what I read, you know, like, and it's amazing to me to think back about that time and how like sci-fi was such a like, you know, redheaded stepchild of the literary community. Um, it didn't get any, in any respect. And like, he was literally, I don't know if he was poor, but he had, he was having financial troubles throughout his entire career, which is kind of amazing when you think about how hugely popular his his novels have been over time it's kind of interesting because like a lot of genre has been like that like until what, like the last like 30 years 40 years it was like anything genre was seen as like really yeah. pulpy or or like niche it's funny because like I, I don't know it might be something where like the dawn of the modern movie really helped elevate it because people found that these genre novels made for like really interesting films yeah, I mean, I would be willing to guarantee that you could draw parallels to Star Wars being relevant and then sci-fi blowing up. Sure. I guarantee that that changed a whole generation of people and how they think. I bet that's true. 
so let's start. We're gonna. I'm gonna break this up uh, chapter by chapter. Uh, I'm gonna give a short little um, summary of what happened in the chapter, and then we'll talk about it. Cool. Let's do it. So our main character, Rick Deckard, uh, wakes up with his wife, Iran, and um, they have this conversation where she kind of teases him about being a murderer, where he uh, about killing Andes, which we learn is short for androids. Um, we get the first mention of an electric sheep upstairs, how um, Rick Deckard wants to save up to buy a real one, but he has a fake one. And um, then they both have this thing where they, they're adjusting a console, which um, it's called a mood organ, and they use these dials to like adjust their moods. And um, Iran says she has scheduled a depression for six hours today, um, and De- Deckard is compu- confused by this, like, why would you ever want to do this? And she basically says that it's not right to, to ignore the emptiness of the world, like you need to feel it. They have this conversation about the different settings, including one that'll make you want to watch TV regardless of what's on. Um, and then he dials her to pleased acknowledgement of a husband's superior wisdom in all matters. <laughs> um, so this is also kind of my first like jump into how this book is a bit dated. It's a 1960s book, and there is a bit of that 1960s patriarchal overtones throughout the novel, I would say. I definitely thought. I mean, as soon as I saw that, I was like, "All right, so we're we're definitely in 1968 when when Philip K. Dick was writing this." Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'll finish up the summary here. Um, he he leaves wearing a lead cod piece. Um, and we hear that there's nuclear fallout flaking down dust. Um, this is the after effects of something called World War Terminus. And um, I think the implication is that the lead cod piece is supposed to help with radiation, like protect your uh, protect your seed. Um, and then he gets up on his rooftop and he has a conversation with his neighbor, a man named Bill Barber. And Bill Barber has a pregnant horse. Um, and the whole time, like, Deckard is feeling kind of self-conscious about his, like, electric sheep he has. Um, so I should say, in this world, uh, a sign of status is, like, what kind of animal you own. Um, and maybe even more than one. And it's, like, this thing where, like, everybody owns an animal. Um, it's like kind of like a preservation effort, it seems like. And But if you can't afford a real animal, people will get these like imitation electric ones. And that's what Deckard's done with this sheep. I don't think I'm going to do this very much. Like, I don't think I'm going to, because I've seen the film and I know what's coming up and I don't want you to know anything other than the fact that like this whole animal thing doesn't really play a part. So you, and you can see how much of this story is about the animals and the animals yeah. keep coming up. Um, that's a big change. So that's something that like right off the bat, I was like, wow, the, the, the novel is named after an electric sheep. And it's kind of not necessarily about the one that's on his roof. It's kind of like, yeah, it's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor, but yeah. it's still, it keeps, it pops up all over the place. And, um, it just, it's interesting how much different than the film is. And I don't think just to not spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen the, the, the 1982 film, I'm not going to say any much more about the film being compared to the book. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think here and there, I mean, the 1982 movie has been out for a while. So I feel like people are probably be okay with spoilers for that a little more than they would be say the new one. Um, I'll leave it up to you to decide. Uh, so Deckard, um, is a bounty hunter and he collects bounties by killing Andes. And, um, he gets, we learn he gets like a thousand bucks per Andy he kills, which seems to be a good amount of money. Um, and so they, the Andes are 
being created by this corporation and awarded to people who immigrate off-planet. And when you go to a new colony off-planet, you get a personal servant android. And then what happens is sometimes these androids kill their human masters and flee and like return back to Earth and then try and pose as humans because that, you know, obviously that's illegal. And so his job is to find these Andes and then retire them, quote unquote, but kill them basically. Um, and so he's having this conversation with his, his neighbor and he um, reveals that he has this electric sheep and then his, um, his neighbor kind of makes a joke and he bristles at it and then he gets into hover car and flies off to go to work. For, for Decker to show his, his neighbor the fact that he had an electric sheep is kind of a big deal because, like you said, it's like a form of status. But he's also this guy who's kind of like his marriage is obviously having issues and like there's like he's not really that happy with all the things that are going on. So I almost feel like this is a way for us to see as the audience that like he's like kind of through caring. Like he's kind of like like he's kind of just gotten to the point where he's just like he'll show his neighbor that he has an electric sheep because like what does it really matter at the end of the day? It's not illegal to not have a real pet, you know? Yeah, it's a little bit of him kind of not giving a fuck, I guess, <laughs> which um, is a little bit like that is kind of part of his character. It seems like early on. Um, what did what did you make of this whole? Because there's, I guess it's an ongoing question, but there's definitely a theme about artificiality and reality, right? That's what this whole book's about. And so the idea that people have these real animals, but Deckard has an artificial one that is almost imperceptibly different, right? Like you almost can't tell the difference. And I don't know. That's kind of what this whole book is about in, in like a microcosm, right? Yeah. It keeps making me think about, for some reason, the mood setting thing here. I almost feel like it's a way for like corporations, like you were saying before, this kind of, he has those overtones in his books. It's almost like these mood settings and things like that are ways to keep people distracted or keep people happy when they probably shouldn't be and they should be pursuing something different. And like the whole status thing just feels like the status of having an animal seems like it was like originally it was in a good place. Like it was like trying to conserve and stuff. And then the fact that it's become a status symbol kind of seems like it's just a way of like some sort of like entity keeping people down or like keeping people worried about trivial things that shouldn't shouldn't really matter. Um, And I kind of feel like that I keep comparing it back to like our lives. Like I feel like there's something else that happens here soon that kind of but with the mood setting thing and kind of like the escape escapism that comes with that you can kind of draw parallels to like cell phones or like ways that that think like facebook keeps people like coming back with notifications all the time and it just all it's just yeah. like ways of keeping people sedated and kind of like not paying attention to what's actually going on in front of them and i think that the wife is kind of picking up on that and that's why she's kind of you know setting her moods because like like sadness and despair is like part of life and she realizes that she needs to feel those things yeah i mean i i completely agree and that reminds me of another recurrent like thing that kept coming up to me was how dick is like he's he's predicting some amazing things i think that all like have even if they're not completely right like they have these like modern like versions and this is way back in 1968. And it's amazing to see, like, the things he's getting right and then the things that are, like, seem so funny that, like, the idea that they would still be doing this, you know, like, the telephones we'll get to. Um, 
like stuff like this where it's like very dated and obviously he didn't foresee the the updates and communication we're going to get but yeah exactly like you're saying like there there is a lot of modern like you can still draw a lot of interesting comparisons to things that do exist today um so in chapter two we learn that the birds died first um when the dust started basically when the dust started falling and people started migrating off the planet and these humanoid robots got it started getting developed and over time they've gotten more and more realistic um and here we meet a man named john Is- isador you think that's how you would say it isador, isador? Uh, yeah i just said I- isador 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 and he's living in a nearly abandoned building in San Francisco, um, which is where Rick Deckard is as well. And he's basically squatting in this apartment. We hear about how there's an American colony on Mars. Um, there's He's watching a TV program. Um, and we learn that basically he is someone who's classified as a quote-unquote special. And his particular kind of special is that he is a chicken head. Um, which it's a little bit unclear exactly what that means uh, other than he's got some sort of impairment in his like cognitive abilities and his ability to um, to like think and, and maybe have like emotional maturity. He seems a little bit childlike to me. And we learned that he is a, man, a mechanical animal repairman who goes around repairing, re- repairing these mechanical animals like the electric sheep we heard about in the, in the previous chapter. And then this section ends with a pretty like weird bit that took me a little bit to kind of get a grasp on. But he basically grabs onto a black box and he enters some sort of virtual reality. Now it's not called virtual reality, but that's the best way I could put it. Where he is like joining his consciousness with other humans around the like globe and beyond. And it's something called having fusion with the Mercer or with Mercer. And it's this whole thing with like mercerism and um he he basically embodies this guy who climbs a hill and keeps getting hit by rocks and like falling and then climbing again and i don't know like this whole section is very odd but it's it's some sort of like virtual reality shared experience that is supposed to help boost your like empathy which is something that is tied very directly to humanity and then the section ends with him hearing the sound of another TV in his apartment complex, which he thought was completely empty. And then he decides he's going to take some margarine and head over to the uh, to the neighbor's place and and uh, offer it to them. So, yeah, what did you think of that whole virtual reality thing? I didn't really know what to make of the the empathy box. Like, I was really trying to like like get into the details of what was written, but it's left like really. It's just kind of confusing, like he becomes this character that's like or i don't know if it's character or what it is like true to life person well, whatever it is late, it's, yeah it's later a simulation. on we hear that it's that it's somebody named wilbur mercer i think so it seems to be like a person but then like maybe it's an entity i don't know yeah so it's like some kind of again this is like kind of what i was talking about it seems like something that was like made by a corporation to seem like so um important and it was a way for you to keep your humanity and keep in contact with the things that are important but it's also just at the end of the day it feels like a way for people them to sedate people and keep people feeling certain feelings artificially like he felt empathy because the the guy that he was was climbing a mountain and then like a rock hit him and everybody's kind of talking about how he's a good guy like oh why would right like it's a kind of like 
he's yeah. a good guy and you know that and then when he comes out of the empathy box or whatever he has a as a wound on his arm and he's like bleeding yeah from so it. it's it's actually beyond just like a visual thing like he literally gets physical damage from it right so it's like some sort of way for people to be like you said empathetic and i, I don't know it's kind of it's kind of tough to interpret yeah but you know if you think about vr headsets right now you know they are these kind of little black boxes we put on our faces and people you know you can play online games with people all over the place like that's something that didn't really exist when he wrote this book so in some ways it is really prophetic um which i think is pretty cool even it is kind of weird um anything else about this introduction of johnny sidor like him being a chicken head for example the idea behind mutated people who've been affected by the fallout i mean if being a gamer like it makes me think of fallout obviously so mm. like hearing about the nuclear like fallout that's affected the united states and all that stuff just makes me think of like ghouls and like other other things that have dealt yeah. with radiation which probably drew their inspiration from this novel and some i'm sure some yeah extent. i'm sure it's always cool to make those connections to draw back yeah. to where it all came from but yeah i just i keep thinking although i know like what the setting is kind of more like sci-fi cyberpunk type thing yeah. um it's it's interesting to think of it also as like this wasteland that's just been decimated by a by yeah a and it definitely is i mean with this like fallout raining from the skies and the dust and everything it's it's described as being really kind of a desolate dark place um this is earth now um but yeah you i think you hinted on this they essentially these specials are not allowed to immigrate like they have to stay on earth and they're not and they can't i don't know if they can't reproduce or they're not allowed to reproduce or both um so basically they're just condemned to like live out their their lives on 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 earth and, and die and john isador just kind of thinking about that i definitely think that he's like in some ways with this also drawing like societal parallels like he's got people who were looked down on for being different and it's not anything of their own choosing you know it's just something that happened to them and i mean i just think that he's trying to there's definitely something there with like society and how people are treated and that kind of thing yeah and we we kind of get a sense of this later and, and now we haven't read the whole book so i don't know how it comes full circle but the one of the methods they use for like finding these andes androids a lot of it seems like there's like a normalization of like this is how a normal person responds to something and if you're outside the norm then you must be an andy but this is already kind of introducing the idea that there are people who have these mental faculty problems and like i think it starts to become an open question like are they going to register quote unquote as normal if they were given these tests and it starts to introduce the idea that maybe these tests are fallible which we can touch on more as we keep going all right let's get to let's get to chapter three now um deckard stops by a quote unquote pet shop and he starts eyeing this expensive ostrich that he wants to buy and um he's on his way to work and uh so he he basically um thinks like oh i want this thing but i can't afford it then he heads to to um his his job and he meets with his police uh, the police inspector harry bryant who is his superior harry bryant tells him that dave holden who is like the lead bounty hunter has essentially been shot or lasered as he puts it and is like out of commission now not dead but like in the hospital and he got shot by when he was like trying to to hunt down these eight new andes that are like in the area and they um 
I guess they all have this Nexus 6 Android brain, which is supposed to be smarter than any other Android brain up until this point. And he got shot by the like third one. He had like retired two of them, and he got shot by the third one. Yeah, so Harry Bryant basically gives him like a um, an assignment to go to the Rosen Corporation, which is up in Seattle. And when he's there, he's going to um, try these empathy tests out and see if they actually work on these these new these new androids. And um, we hear that he thinks of uh, Andes as the killers, quote unquote, which made me wonder, and I forgot to look it up. Um, I wonder if like the band called the killers, like, is that a reference to this? That would be funny if it was. Um, and he says, um, like, they're kind of their, their like main operating thing is that, that you shall only kill the killers. Um, so they're not supposed to kill humans under any circumstances. Yeah, so they, and then I, I, I mentioned it was funny how they still have phone books, um, how he's still got a secretary. There's a lot of talk about, like, putting calls through, and it's very, like, old-school old switchboard-type stuff. And then um, Deckard calls the pet shop to haggle the price of the ostrich. Um, we, hear about, we hear about this, like, magazine that has the list of all these animals listed, um, and he, he's trying to haggle with it, but they basically decide they're not going to go. He, they're not going to go any lower. And he kind of hangs up, uh, kind of upset about it. Yeah, what did you, what did you think of this introduction to the uh, to the police station here? I think it's an interesting dynamic, and I think it was smart for Philip K. Dick to have Deckard be like kind of not the best detective in the branch. Like the best guy's already been taken. It adds like a bit of tension to know that yeah the the better like more superior senior officer got shot in the back by these replicants and. And now Deckard's on Not the job. Not called replicants in, in this, though. Andes. Andes, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> replicants gonna be, is a much better name. It's a much better name. It's so much cooler. It's going to be... I'm going to call them replicants all the time. I'll, I apologize. I'll try to call them Andes. Yeah, um, Andes is kind of weird, but that's what they call them in the book. So, uh, some little fact thing that I that I thought of was the these uh, robots are called the Nexus 6 and um, yeah they're also called brains. that they're also called that in the like there's also a reference to nexus in in the film but really? uh google made a phone that. google made a phone called nexus oh interesting did you know that <laughs> i wonder if it yeah, one no, of my I friends one of my friends had had a like had a google uh nexus 6 and i was like as soon as i read that i was like is this real life right now to google name their their <laughs> phone after after like andy's or replicants so I just I thought know, that was a man. funny little thing. Yeah. Um, I also think that th- it's interesting that he calls this test the Voigt-Kampf test, mm-hmm. where I was I looked into it because um, in the movie in the yeah the movie Ex Machina, they talk about the mm-hmm. Turing test a lot. Yeah. Which is like the test of artificial intelligence and whether it's like what the line is between being an actual conscious being and being a computer. Yeah, the Turing test is about a human subject who is fooled into thinking they're interacting with a with another human when then in fact they're interacting with an AI. Right. So it just like seems like very similar to that and I looked into it and the Turing test was developed in like 1950. So I just I wonder if we'll see so it predates this. Well, this is more advanced because this is more about a what we learn later. They actually have an apparatus set up that the person like looks into and wears 
and it detects like subtle variations and like response time and stuff like that um to where i think to the naked eye you would be fooled so you would pass the turing test but this is a deeper thing where something about their empathy is off which i immediately raises problems for me like i might immediately i'm like so if you strap this thing on a psychopath who you know what i mean like doesn't feel empathy they're going to get this wrong and they're going to come off as an android immediately. Like, so there's already problems I think built into this, but this is the test that they use and that's what they, they, he puts forward in the book. Yeah. So it's just do like, they have, the... do they do this test in the, in the movie? Is this familiar? Yeah. yeah. This is, this is the, they do this test. Okay. In the movie. Yeah. All right. So chapter four, uh, Deckard superior sends him to Seattle to, to check out the, something called the Rosen corporation. And when he's there, he's he's going to basically do this um, empathy test and see if he can identify between humans and androids. They're going to put a couple of humans into the test, they say. So he takes his hover car up to Seattle, meets a woman named Rachel Rosen on top of the Rosen Corporation building. Um, when he's up there on the roof, they have this collection of animals on display. And um, there's a raccoon and even an owl, which are supposedly um, extinct. But she says, no, they, they have one that hasn't been reported. And I was, I was reminded here of Westworld, um, specifically because of these like synthe- uh, possibly synthetic, maybe real um, animals that we keep hearing about. I don't know. Did you, have you thought at all about Westworld in relation to this novel? Did it make you think of that at all? Yeah, I mean, I definitely was thinking Westworld during this novel a lot because of the nature of it being like these androids that are like, like they're conscious and they're like human beings on their own, basically. And then like the way that actual human beings are treating them and just the relationship between the two. And so, yeah, like with all the all the animals and everything being artificial, it's definitely very it has that Westworld vibe for sure. Yeah, it's just cool to see the like precursor to all these like modern works right and that to me this novel seems like i can see that it's in the dna of a lot of these like more recent um sci-fi projects but yeah so deckard asks how much it costs he kind of um she kind of says that you can't afford it essentially and they go downstairs and they meet uh eldon rosen who is rachel's uncle um and deckard basically starts to detect that they're a little bit afraid of him because he has this power to possibly derail their whole line of these new android brains. And so he says, all right, I'm going to administer the test. Let me get set up. And while he's getting set set up, Rachel says, uh, I would like for you to administer the test on me first. And Eldon agrees to it and he's going to watch. Um, oh, I did want to ask. So, well, I guess let's get into chapter five where he actually gives the test. Um, he, he sets it up and it's going to measure her pupil dilation and her physical response to these social situations. And the, the first one he asks is basically someone gives you a calfskin wallet. And then he tries to see like how scandalized she is because that's a taboo thing in society now. Like you can't be using calfskin. And then as he goes, the questions start getting trickier and he starts like hiding things that should elicit responses and, and nesting them. And um, he's kind of judging her reaction, writing it down, taking notes. And ultimately, he decides that she is an android because of some, uh, some delays she has in her responses. And Eldon says, nope, she's real. 
She spent her first 14 years on a spacecraft learning, and she only learned about Earth remotely. Because of that, she she um, doesn't react the same way that most people do. And so she, um, she often gets this false reading as an Andy when she takes these tests. And they've basically proven, quote-unquote, that Deckard's test doesn't work and that he can't administer it and basically nullifies it. Um, but... Then they try and bribe him and they say they're going to offer him the owl in return for him basically you know giving his approval on these new android brains he is seems like he's considering agreeing when all of a sudden he notices that she uh is calling the owl an it and not a she um because the owl is supposed to be female um which okay like i probably would do the same thing um but whatever this is this is proof enough for 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 uh, deckard here and um so he says can i ask you one more question and she agrees and he says my briefcase is made of 100 percent baby hide and then he like judges her reaction which he determines to be slow and says nope you're an android my test works um and then he asks eldon like do you do he says does she even know and eldon says no so this moment of like holy shit is like this uh it's the first moment this book like really hooked me because it was this big reveal that i wasn't expecting and this was the first moment where like beyond just the like interest of reading this classic sci-fi novel like the story itself like really drew me in yeah i really like this scene we talked about how the film isn't exactly the the same as the novel and this is a scene that the film rightly so put its version of into the feature. The scene adds so much tension for basically the rest of the novel because we're seeing whether or not these androids can actually be tested to see if they're if they're human or not. When he tests Rachel, Eldon uh, says that that she is in fact a human, even though he came up with replica, even though Decker came up with replica, or Andy. Yeah, so this this was a moment for me where it was my first, like, where I was really impressed with the kind of the misdirection that Philip K. Dick is doing here, where he's 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 making us think, like, she's a human who's trying to throw off the test, the test isn't accurate, but, oh, maybe it is, and actually she's a, she's a, not, I'm going to do it, she's an Andy, and um, she has this moment, like, she didn't even know, which that's a whole new bit of information we didn't realize, right? We didn't realize that these Andys could think that they're real humans and have these implanted memories and that opens up a whole new can of worms right like that's and that's very westworld as well right that's the that's the tension that i was that i was talking about it's just it becomes rather than you're trying to hunt down these people who are hiding from you it's people who aren't even hiding from you because they don't think that they're androids so it's going to get a lot tougher for decade yeah, and like if an android doesn't know that it's an android and just thinks it's a normal person like you start to get into these philosophical questions of like, well, what is it then really? Like, what does that mean to, you know, to not be real if you're not even aware of it? Definitely. Yeah. And I think something that I really like about this, this novel in this story in general is that it's taking the idea of something so simple, like Deckard needs to track down these, these Andes in order to fulfill his bounty hunting job. But at the same time, there's all these philosophical ideas at play. Like, what is consciousness? What is life? What is imitation? That all of these things are at play. Yeah, so I think this is a great time to talk about if you are really 
if you're if you're interested by this book and you're curious about it and you and you were hoping there was a way that you could listen to it or read it without having to spend any money just to kind of like check it out um we've got great news yeah we actually got a sponsor audible is the sponsor of this podcast yeah it's a match made in heaven i think i mean if you if you you already like listening to things you're listening to a podcast and you say oh i want to check out this this book that they're talking about maybe uh, see what it's like but i don't want to spend any money go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film and you're gonna get 30 free days and you're gonna get a free credit which you can use on this book and if you wanted to and uh and you can you can check it out all you have to do is sign up for the trial with our with our code there audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film and it allows you to get 30 free days but in addition to that that free credit you any book that you want to read whether it's blade runner or do android stream of electric sheep or if it's anything else that you've been interested in i know they have game of thrones they have they have the hobbit they have they have tons of, of books on there for you to read yeah 180,000 titles yeah it's so convenient you're able to listen to it just like a podcast. You can listen to it on your commute to work. You can listen to it while you're doing chores. You can listen to it at any time. And I, I've i used the service myself. I used it a little bit for Stephen King's It when we were going over that, which was our previous project. And I mean, it's just, it's it makes it so that you can hear the story and just it adds that extra layer to it. You can, I know you said that you sometimes will buy it. You'll get the Audible in addition to the physical copy of the novel. Yeah, I've been using their service for years. Uh, I'm actually not sure exactly how many. I'd like to go back and look. But So I've listened to dozens of books on there. Um, it's great. And um, yeah, like uh, I sometimes will get the, get the audio version of a book that I have a print copy of. Just because sometimes it can be a, such a different experience um, re- having someone read it to you. And it gives you the ability to multitask and all that, all that fun stuff. But yeah, if you're going to do this and you're going to check out Audible, make sure you go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. That way you can get the 30 free days, you can get that free title, and you can support our podcast, which uh, every time someone does that, it's going to help us a lot. So yeah, just check out Audible. All right, let's get back into chapter six. We got John Isidore standing outside the doorway um, that he had heard a TV from um, in his apartment building, and he can hear Buster Friendly um on tv inside which that name just struck me as being really familiar and i wasn't sure like is that in the movie um it's been a little while since i last watched the film so i'm looking forward to jumping back into it but i don't think so i don't remember buster friendly being in the in the film but it does sound super familiar to me as well i agree yeah i wonder if like that's been referenced elsewhere and i've just heard it or if like fallout made it a character in their video game or something like it just it sounds so familiar um, anyway, so he knocks on the door and a girl opens up the door and there was a description of her that I thought was particularly good, um, that I wanted to, to read verbatim here. Um, in general, I, fi- I found that the prose is a little bit dated, um, and sometimes a little bit awkward, not bad. Um, but just, a, just a little off to a modern ear, at least to my modern ear, um, but this section was particularly was particularly good, so I just want to give you a taste of it here. So this is the description of the girl who opened the door. Fear made her seem ill. It distorted her body lines, made her appear as if someone had broken her, and then, with malice, patched her together badly. Which, yeah, I just, I just thought that was like a really cool 
way to put a description that would give you this like really unique view of this frightened girl who opens the door. Um, and yeah, so John Isidore offers to help her unpack because he notices she's just she's just arrived. Um, he sees that she has a bunch of old decaying furniture and he says they could go around together and collect more. Um, he has this whole like talk about Kipple and how it's like basically piles of garbage and how the whole world is becoming garbage and um, that's something that he, he seems to kind of buy into. Um, and yeah, he's brought her this margarine and, um, he's holding that in his hand the whole time. And he admits to being a chicken head. Um, he notices that she doesn't have an empathy box and doesn't participate in something called fusion. And, oh yeah, she's uh, also not wearing a shirt this whole time, by the way, she opens up the door topless. Um, and, uh, which he like notices, but he's not like leering at her or whatever, but it's another, you know, sign of like women being sex sexualized in this book in a way that's a little bit odd to me as a modern reader. Not odd, I should say. Um, it's 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 a proof of the patriarchy that is still around today, but was really bad in the '60s. And it's clear this is a male writer, and he seems to think that every time he writes a female character, he has to talk about her in some sexual way, which. Um, it doesn't ruin the book for me, but I could find I definitely would understand if someone if someone couldn't couldn't handle that or didn't. Yeah, like I it. feel like I'm just as it, as we go on, I feel like I'm just making a list of these of these moments because it's like at least once per chapter. Anytime a woman isn't in, isn't involved, there's definitely that patriarchal feeling going. Yeah, on. he like he like basically has to feels like he has to tell you how good looking she is. Like, all right, so this is one character. Let me tell you how good looking she is. Like, it's always like from this like sexual point of view um and it's not just you know deckard because this is uh, john isidore doing the same thing so um it's it seems to be just how he writes women regardless um she basically invites um him to return later to help her and then he asks if she can cook them dinner but she refuses and then he notices that she has this kind of like cold coldness to her and um, as he notices that, she reveals that she is, in fact, Rachel Rosen, who we just met in the previous chapter. So this was like another like mind-blowing moment to me where I thought, okay, so this must not be happening linearly. Like, this has to be happening some point after what happened in the, in the, in the Deckard chapter. I don't know. So is that, was that what your read of this was? I actually feel like I had a different... I feel like she was using Rachel Rosen as a cover for some reason. I'm not really sure. See, because she, she later says her name is Pris Stratton, mm -hmm. I tend to believe that she she revealed her name to uh, Isidore because he... after he, Only after he had told her that he was a chicken head. So yeah. I feel like that was her like kind of realizing that like he wasn't a threat and kind of being like okay that's not really who i am especially after he like grilled her about it and was like oh you're rachel rosen from the rosen corporation and knew all these facts that, like knew all this stuff about her and was wondering why she would be there so it just seemed kind of illogical and she was just like all right you're right i'm pris stratton yeah see i thought see i thought she she um this is her after she's basically gone awol and and you know it, it's like it's, it would have to be non-linear right this would have to be at some point later but um it seemed to me like the physical description of her is the main giveaway because it seems very, very similar to how Decker describes her when he first meets her on the roof. 
So to me, it seems like she is the same person, but I don't know. I'll be interested to see where it goes because it, it, it is un- unclear. Right. I didn't I, I didn't see it that way. But now that you say it, I can totally see it being like some sort of nonlinear broken up story where this is like her post some sort yeah. of thing that happens with Deckard at the end. Yeah. And it does. It also makes me think about Isidore. And is he really who he says he is or is he somebody else? I don't know. Like, it, it, like, yeah. because we got androids with false memories and all this like is he an android is he actually deckard like what is he a chicken head android yeah who knows like we're already there's so much uncertainty in people's identities that um i'm kind of falling down the rabbit hole a little bit there um all right let's jump into chapter seven um isidore is standing there like in front of the closed door clutching a soft cube of margarine which i just think is a really funny line um because he thinks that like this is something that you bring your neighbor, right? Like he and and um, oh, we also get this uh, this thought of most women like to cook; it's an instinct, um, which is another very dated point of view. Yeah, um, he's like thinking about how how Prim will later want to cook for them together because it's like once she does it once, she'll realize that she loves to do it. And yeah, yeah. again, it's just like yeah. you could definitely see what what time period this was written in. So then Isidore heads heads out to go to work. And um, his job is he picks up these dysfunctional electric animals. And he begins with this sick cat that he um, that he gets from this guy. And he puts it in the back of his truck, and, he, and he's going to take it in. And while he's driving, it starts mewling and making all these noises in this, like, plastic bag. And he and he thinks, like, oh, it's it's amazing how realistic it sounds. But I got to go, like, check on it. So he goes back there, and then he's, like, trying to find, like, an, like, access hatch or something. And he can't. Um... And I don't know about you, but like, I immediately started to think, well, I, so how soon did you know that this cat was a real cat? I actually, I didn't even pick up on the fact that it wasn't until later on, until we talked about it, until they talked about it later on. Yeah. I, um, I feel like I I was kind of onto it pretty quick. It just seemed like there was this dramatic, like dramatic irony being built of like him being like, oh, you know, making all these assumptions about it being fake. And then like everything it was doing was something a real cat would be doing in its death throes. So I was like, Oh boy, this is a real thing. And sure enough, I mean, like I was right this time, often, often wrong about these things, but, um, it ends up being right on. So, um, Oh yeah. On the way to the uh, repair shop though, um, he's listening to a radio show, which is, um, being put on by Buster friendly. And he thinks about how, he always has these like guests on um, over and over again, the same ones. And he thinks about how they never get tired and they never get bored. And this is the show that's broadcast 24 hours a day on every channel, or I think there is only one channel. Um, and it's also, he also does radio shows somehow. And he thinks like, how is that even possible? And he begins to think that um, Wilbur Mercer and Buster Friendly are fighting for, people's psychic selves quote unquote and he wants to tell his boss about that when he gets there so what do you think of what do you think of buster friendly being and wilbur mercer at this point being like these like entities rather than being like actual people like do you think that's some sort of manipulation that's going on i really don't know what to make of the mercer stuff i mean we've talked about it as like the the virtual reality thing is very odd to me but with buster friendly i just keep thinking he is a android and not is not only you know one like probably multiple androids versions copies 
and like one records the radio show and run does this and it's just like programmed like i keep thinking of like a jimmy fallon type and it's just someone who does this like perpetual talk show and he has these guests on but it's funny because like the guests are said to like not have actually achieved anything like they're not actors or anything like they're just like kardashians essentially they're, they're just perpetual celebrities yeah and i thought it was it was actually a really int- like kind of a commentary on like pop culture loaded in there too um yeah i definitely see that i i see it as like this this kind of like i don't know if it's because of the thing we talked about before but like the corporate manipulation where like they're feeding you the stuff you they're feeding you your entertainment they're feeding you everything that you need because he's everywhere and it seems like the people who are like like the chicken head or like it seems it doesn't seem like a lot of people that are like higher in status are listening to it as much it's just kind of something that we've i guess we haven't seen enough to to make that point but it just seems like it's like something to keep the masses entertained or, or subdued yeah. yeah so um he arrives back at headquarters um with this dead cat and we, we meet his boss whose name is Hannibal Sloat, yeah. And so Hannibal Sloat is this, like, old human who did not migrate, but he's also not a chicken head, and he's just kind of remained. And, like, his glasses are getting coated thicker and thicker with dust, um, which I think is another kind of, like, metaphor. Um, And just, like, the world is getting coated with dust. And um, also, yeah, you can't see, so... I don't know. There's a lot of that's an interesting metaphor, right? Like if your if your if your vision is being occluded and you're in you're becoming less perceptive of the world. He ha- he has this conversation. Uh, John Isidore has this conversation with him about his theory, and uh, he says, "Well, the Mercer Mercer must be winning because he's eternal." But Hannibal says, "Well, Buster Friendly is also eternal," and he kind of like raises the idea that like i kind of just put forth that maybe he's some sort of android or other i think they even say like another like worldly be like another another worldly being like maybe an alien um which i don't know if that's just like conjecture or if there's any truth to that i don't know um and then right then hannibal realizes that the cat isn't a false cat at all it's actually a real live cat that's now dead and he basically blames John for everything. And John gets, like, really upset and starts stuttering. And um, a repairman named Milt Borgrove arrives. And uh, they are both mad at, at John. And um, they uh, Hannibal demands that John makes the call to the cat's owner to give him the bad news. John agrees to do it, thinking that the man won't be home. But instead, he gets the man's wife. And uh, on the moment, he, he says, like, we can replace your cat. We'll get you an electric version. And at first, she's like, no, we, I couldn't possibly do that. And then she thinks, like, actually, I don't know if my husband can handle having this cat, his cat die. So, yeah, let's make a replica and we'll and I'll we'll make the swap. And he'll never he'll never have to go through the, the trauma of learning that his cat died. So how did you feel about the phone call that that uh, they forced Isidore to make? Like, it was kind of like this, like, punishment, also just, like, trial to see if he could do it, even though they knew that he couldn't slash wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems kind of cruel in the moment, right? Because it's clear that he's not comfortable doing this sort of thing, and he's he feels really bad about what happened. Um, and even, like, um, Milt is trying to, like, talk Hannibal out of it, but Hannibal, like, it's like, no, he has to make it. And then, yeah, he does okay, actually. Like, he doesn't, com- like, he does an okay job. And, um... I thought it was really interesting that the wife um, 
seems to be on a different wavelength than the husband, right? Like she wants, she thinks that the husband's going to be broken up about his cat dying. But it seemed to me that when the husband gave the cat to Isidore, he thought it was, he thought it was uh, an electric cat already. So what did you make of that disconnect? It's almost like the husband is so jaded and surrounded by all of these machines and fake beings that he just, even though the cat was real, just assumed that it was fake and wasn't close enough to it to realize that it was, even though the wife said that he loved it, it just seemed like he was so disconnected that he was like, yeah, we need this fixed. And it was a real yeah. cat all along. He's gotten, he's gotten to the point where just everything seems artificial to him, maybe. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, and I don't know that we'll ever get an answer to it, but it does seem like her her perception of his relationship to the cat and, and, and how he actually feels about it are two very different things. All right, so chapter eight, Deckard um, is back in Seattle, or sorry, back in San Francisco, and told to pursue Polakov which is the Andy who lasered his uh, uh, Dave, the other bounty hunter. And it said that um, Polakov is mimicking a special, a quote-unquote ant head, and, uh, which I don't know what that is, but it's really interesting sounding. Uh, Deckard agrees he's going to do it. Um, his superior tells him that Sander Kadali, a Soviet cop from the WPO, is going to come by and join him. And going to help him on his investigation. Um, and uh, Deckard says he wants to go hunt this uh, Polakov first. Um, so he goes to where Polakov worked, which was a trash collecting service, which we find out is like big business now um, because there's so much garbage everywhere. Um, and But he finds out that Polakov didn't show for work. So he goes to the, uh, the Andy's apartment. And um, when he's getting there, he turns on this wave-emitting device that's supposedly going to, like, paralyze people in the vicinity. Um, but then he doesn't find Polakov in the apartment. He returns to the rooftop and calls in. Um, and he finds out that Mr. K, uh, which I'll call him now, uh, is going to come going to come to where he is and basically to stay put. And so he's reading up on the next Andy on the list, which is a Miss um, Luba Luft. And while he's reading about her, he gets a call from Rachel Rosen. And Rachel Rosen says she wants to come along and help him hunt these Andes. And he refuses, basically, um, and she says, you know, you're going to need my help because I understand how they think. But he he turns her down. And then right then, um, Mr. K arrives in a taxi, and he's this, like, big Russian-looking guy who's wearing, like, an old coat or something. And um, he joins him in his car, and he says, hey, and, and I'm sorry, Deckard uh, sees that he has this new weapon, like a new laser, um, and um, Mr. K offers it to him. And while he's holding it, um, Mr. K tries to make it like remote, remote fire, um, which we assume would have killed Deckard. But the wave emitter seems to be preventing it from happening. And so Mr. K tries to strangle Deckard, um, and then as they're like wrestling, Deckard gets a hold of his magnum and gets a shot off, which blows a hole in, uh, in Mr. K's head. What did you think of this, uh, this confrontation here? I like this scene. Um, I kind of feel like I saw the Mr. K, uh, being Polakov coming kind of thing, but I did, I, I thought it was cool that he like pulled out his old school, like his old school gun to, to kill him and like blew his head off in like a action way. This one got me. I I was totally surprised. 
I did not. I was like, oh, wait, this is him. Like, I should have seen it coming because it's like, I don't know, it seems like obvious in retrospect. But man, it got me. I, I was totally surprised when he ended up being uh, an Andy. Fun scene, too. I really enjoyed it. And then what do you make of the whole uh, Rachel calling, trying to be his sidekick? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, so it also made me wonder... And I, 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 I guess I should save this a little bit for the next section, but it gets, it's about to get really weird. And I was like, so was Mr. K always Polakov, you think? I don't think so. Do so think? there is, is there actually a real Mr. K? I think so, yeah. Who is that was my, okay. That's what I interpreted, but yeah, maybe I'm wrong. It, but it, it's about to get real weird. Real weird. Yeah. If it hasn't been weird already, it's going to get even weirder. Um, so anyway, let me finish out this scene. Um, Deckard calls his wife, Iran, who is dialed to her depression and, um, in the mood, in the mood, uh, things. Yeah. Her, her mood organ, her mood organ. Um, and, um, he wants to tell her about all this money he's going to earn from killing because he's kind of excited because he got the best of one of them. He retired one of the Andes and, um, he's, he's like, I'm going to go try Lubaloft on my, on my own. And because um, he knows that she is an opera singer and he thinks about how he likes the opera. Um, and he has some thoughts about how he's always attracted to female Andes, which kind of makes Deckard seem kind of creepy to me. But regardless, I think he also I, addresses how it's like he knows that it's not like he, he knows like in his mind that it's that it's like weird and he shouldn't be attracted to yeah, them. But it's just things. like a physical response kind of. Yeah. Which, I mean, like, look at all the sex dolls that are out there today already being developed. So that definitely would be a thing. I have no doubt. Um, or will be a thing, should I say, <laughs> in the very near future. Um, all right, so chapter nine. Uh, Deckard goes to... This is where things start getting pretty weird. Um, so Deckard goes to this old opera house, and a re- rehearsal's underway, and... He starts thinking about like universal entropy and how everything is becoming dust. And as he's having these thoughts, um, she finishes up their performance and he makes his way backstage and he finds uh, Luba Luff's dressing room and surprises her in there, kind of knocks on the door and she's like, you know, who are you? And he says, he's a cop. And he says he needs to administer this test. And she starts to like realize that he's trying to see if she's an Andy. And, um, she she has this thing where like she her, her vocabulary is off so she doesn't quite understand the questions and it seems to really mess with the test so he's asking her a lot of the same questions that we heard earlier um but she notices that the the, the, the a lot of the questions have like sexual undertones and um while she's struggling to understand one of the questions um she like i think like the like thing on her face falls to the ground the um the, one of the the test apparatus things and he he basically bends over to get it and she gets she gets his gun on him and she pulls the laser on him and points it at him and then so she says he thinks like oh shit she's she's an andy and she's gonna kill me and first off did, is that what you thought was happened like did you think she was one of the andys and that she had just got the drop on him yeah i did i was like oh man she got him yeah well misdirection it doesn't seem like she actually is i don't know it gets very weird. So she she calls this cop in, and this cop shows up who's supposed to be this, like, he's called a harness bull, which I'm not sure what that means. I, I don't know if that's something that would have meant something to me if I had been around in the 60s, but to, it doesn't mean anything to me now. 
but um i took it to mean like he's just like a like a beat cop like a standard cop um and so this cop shows up and he says uh you know who are you and deckard's like oh good you're here uh i'm a bounty hunter you know with with the official you know all justice or whatever and he says well i know all the all the bounty hunters in san francisco and i don't know you and so all of a sudden it's this moment of like uh wait a minute what's happening and so then he um deckard thinks that the cop is also an andy and he's in on it now and they're, they're both of them are putting one over on him but they have the like they, they could kill him but they don't and instead he makes a call makes a vid call and he calls his superior gets through talks to him and he says you know hey i'm here with this cop and he's not believing that i'm that i am who i say i am and and um his his, his superior i think his name is harry says put me on the line with him and so he hands him the phone and the cop says uh there's nobody on the other end of this there's just nobody there and he's like trying to say hello and getting no response and then like shows it to deckard and sure enough no one's on the other end of the line now so this is a very like mind-blowing moment to me because it's like what is even happening here what what was your what where were you at with this scene i mean this is starting to get into like that question that's kind of posed in in the uh 1982 film that i was asking so i don't want to say too much but it's kind of just like what is happening here like is has this all been like some sort of like elaborate setup for Deckard to be like like some fall man or like to doubt or to doubt himself yeah is there some sort or is this like actually replicants that have like planned this other stuff out and like like are these really cops like they can't be cops right or they are and he and like because they even say like or maybe you're the replicant and maybe you're not like because they say oh this is another part um that i thought was really cool they say one of the one of the things he said deckard says that he he um looks for is that um andy's don't care what happened to other andy's and she turns that around on him and says well then how do you know you aren't one because you clearly don't care what happens to all these andy's that you're retiring and that's like this the beginning of the tables getting turned on him right because everything that's happening is pointing to him being an andy himself and having these implanted memories and actually and then we hear about how sometimes these andes are posing as bounty hunters themselves like this has happened before and so it's like oh shit what is real is is deckard who he thinks he is he says that he's taken the test in the past but it could just be an implanted memory anyway the cop basically decides he's going to take him and he says um we're going to go to the new hall of justice and um which uh deckard is is finds out is different than the one he knows he's been going to this place that the the cop says is the old one and so like deckard is completely kind of like put uh, you know put on edge by this and um he doesn't know what the hell's going on all right so chapter 10 um they land on this new hall of justice they process him senior officer takes over um deckard tries to call home but a woman he doesn't recognize picks up this is another moment of like what the hell is even happening right now um so it's not his wife someone else so he hangs up and then he's talking to the senior officer who we find out his name's garland he takes him back to a room and he has he has more questions for him and they start talking about the test and um garland reveals he opens up the you know the briefcase that deckard's had and says i'm the next like he reveals that he is the next on his list 
literally Garland is the next of the Andes that uh, Deckard was hunting down. And so he calls in another bounty hunter, someone named Phil Resch. And Phil comes in, and immediately, it's funny because it seems like Phil is kind of on the side of Deckard. And he starts saying, like, like he's like, oh, yeah, he thinks I'm an Andy, Garland says. And, and uh, Phil's kind of like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> Which I thought was just really funny. Like, he's like, hmm, I've always had suspicions, too, kind of thing. Um and so he starts talking about how, like, yeah, it would actually be a really good way to hide an Andy is to put him, like, high up in, in police uh, hierarchy. And he says um, he's always been suspecting um, this Russian, this Russian, um, Mr. K, as being an Andy. And so uh, they think, um, Garland thinks, like, that uh, Deckard has killed a real person. And the bone marrow test comes back right as they're talking. And the bone marrow test backs up Deckard and says that Mr. K was, in fact, an android. And so when that's revealed, all of a sudden Garland is, like, really put back because he thought that that, he, that was a real person. So now they kind of end the scene with um, each of them saying, you know what, we're going we're gonna to each take a test. But um, the test isn't going to be the, um, the empathy test. It's going to be this new test, um, like a reflex test. And, um, yeah, so it ends with this kind of standoff where they're all looking at each other and they're, they're all going to take this test to, to figure out who's an Andy and who's not. And, honestly, I feel like I have no idea who who is what in this scene. Like, where, where were you at with this scene? I mean, I'm in the same boat. I'm going to go ahead and say that Rick is... I mean, he was right about the android. Polakov was an android. Garland isn't was the next on the list. So if we're believing Rick's side, then Rick isn't, and then Resh probably isn't, and Garland is. So we're going to find out that Garland is. Um, or the flip. It, my question is, do we think that the tests are going to... Do we think the reflex test is going to be good enough? I don't know, man. And it's weird, too, because it's like... it's a, Everything has been... Nothing's been lining up. Like, where is this other police force that he has been a part of? Why has no one heard of it? Um, and the only so it seems to me that the only way that that could be true is, is everyone he's encountering right now is an Andy right like they all have to be because they all seem to be in on it even this other bounty hunter unless like he's completely fooled by it I don't know right. I mean I think it's leading us to believe that I think that there's going to be some sort of twist where Rick is not an android even though everything is like oh my gosh he's going to be an android pointing him to be one yeah yeah because everything that's happened for the last cha two chapters is like he's a fish out of water like he doesn't know where he's going he doesn't know they're, they're talking about the old police station they're talking about he's trying to call his superior officer and there's nobody on the line and his wife is a different person so all of these things are either so, so how did that happen like was that something they orchestrated yeah i don't know it's it, it could be explained away by so many things i think this is a good spot like i'm glad that we stopped after yeah. chapter 10 because it's a great little cliffhanger area and both is, neither of us yeah. really know where it's heading Man, I really wanted to read the next chapter when I finished this one. I was like, what is even happening right now? I'm so confused. But, like, confused in a good way. Like, I'm confused, but, like, I do feel like he, like, uh, Dick is, like, in control. And, like, he has a plan. And he he knows, like, the answers to all these questions. Not He's not just, like, creating mystery for mystery's sake. Like, there is there is some sort of truth here that we're going to, I hope we're going to get. Right. So do you want to make expectations? You want to see wh who do you think is and is not? Because I said I think that we're going to find out within this test. I think we're going to find out. I don't necessarily know for the long term, 
but I think we're going to find out that Garland is a replicant or an Andy. Yeah, man. I like that seems to be like where like I feel like that's what Dick is like, expecting us to think right now. And so I feel like that's not going to end up being the case. Like okay. I think I think that's kind of what like it's going to end up being that like the bounty hunter that's going to be my prediction. Like Phil is going to is going to somehow be an Andy and he's going to be like administering this test maybe in the wrong way and like Deckard's going to like catch him doing it. I don't know. But then like why is he on the list and stuff? Like I don't know, man. Like I'm I'm all over the place with this scene. Yeah. I like the uncertainty. I'm really I'm I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I feel like there's no like steady ground for me to like be like this I know is real. So because of this one thing, I can make all my other predictions cuz like it's all getting like all the rugs are getting pulled out from under me right now. Right. We can't like, even I trust don't know if any of this is real. Right. We can't try not even like the other storyline that's kind of going on seems yeah, to be Yeah, like, we don't even know real. what t- when the timeline of that is and like is Isidore Deckard are they the same person like in in like but after some sort of thing where he doesn't remember it? I don't know. I feel like anything is possible at this point in this book, which is that's a pretty cool place to, to stop, I guess, for this halfway point. Okay, and if you'd like to listen along, catch up to where we are, get ready for part two, make sure you use our affiliate link, uh, audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. Yeah, and if you want to get prepped for the film coming up, we're going to do Blade Runner 1982 and then Blade Runner 2049. So you can watch 82 in anticipation of our of our movie episode in a couple of weeks and then also if you want to leave us any sort of feedback uh based on the book or the movies you can send it to ink to film at gmail.com we might read it on the air yeah i mean i know a lot of people who well not a lot but i know some people who've read this book and i definitely know a lot of people have seen that movie so if you have anything that you would like us to talk about in in advance of this movie yeah, like you said, we can bring it up and, and we can really set the stage for the movie episode. Um, if you are enjoying this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. That's the best way to make sure you get any future episodes that come out. And if you really want to help us, uh, leave us a rating and a review. That would be completely awesome. Yeah, and, and in addition to our, our Gmail, you can also contact us on Twitter or Facebook, send us messages or anything like that. You can also follow our pages. We're on Instagram, Facebook, twitter ink to film ink to film on all of them also we just want to go ahead and say thank you to ross bugden for the use of our intro and outro music he's got a great youtube channel yeah check it out and uh thanks to audible for being our sponsor all right i think that's going to be it for part one i hope you join us again for part two next week uh i think i'm going to set my mood organ for six hours of existential despair (laughs) i'm going to set my mood organ for six hours of blissful happiness (laughs) all right we'll see which one works out better uh until then i'm luke and i'm james see ya